Thanks for joining me today, Javon. I appreciate it, man. My man Lee, how are you, sir? I am doing well. It's nice and hot here in the Carolinas, so I'm trying to stay cool. I'm sure it's not uh, too much different down in Texas, right? Yeah, I was going to say, man, I don't want to hear anything about heat, man. It was like, it was 106 <laughs> here, like legit 106. I looked on my phone. It said 106. The car, the thermostat in the car said 109. Okay, uh, yeah. yeah, and then yeah, I, I looked. Beat them. We're at 100. So yeah, yeah, man. You, you go ahead and take that cool weather. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, look, man. You know, right before we jumped in, you you brought up an interesting point, and we were talking a little bit, and it was something as as simple as a name. And so, you know, like like I was telling you about the topic is who's behind the mask, and so. I want to start, you know, early on and kind of work back to present day and we'll actually get to the the point of, you know, what you prefer to go by. But tell us a little bit about yourself, man, for people that haven't been, uh, you know, hadn't had a chance to get to know you or hear about your journey. I'd love to hear, you know, where you're from and a little bit about your journey early on in childhood. Wow, man. Okay. So if we're going to start early and go forward. So, so currently I'm the, the president and CEO of Scribe Media. And I'll give you a, get some, some details into that. Five-year-old company. Uh, we've worked with over 1,700 authors. Some of them, I'm, I'm sure you and your listeners know who they are. The, the big book that we did last year was uh, David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me. He had mm-hmm. the most sought after book in America, second only to Michelle Obama. So that was a big win for us. Uh, one of the books that I'm very proud of is the Nobel P- Peace Prize Committee, because that spoke of our quality. And for, for me, I, I've always made the joke now that if our quality is good enough for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, no one else has an excuse not to work with us. <laughs> so but yeah, we, we've got numerous New York Times bestselling authors we've worked with, Wall Street Journal bestselling authors. So that's what I do now. But didn't come from that. I uh, started off in this world. My father was a black pimp and drug dealer back in the 70s. I was born in 1971. And when I say black pimp, we, you know, our, our society is really... Uh, twisted the word and we use pimp as a positive now there, there mm-hmm. my, my dad there was no positive in in the pimp version of what he did mm-hmm. he put women on the street corner they sold their bodies and my dad took took every dollar and along the way he also managed to father 23 children so i'm one of 23 by my father yeah wow. and now my mother uh, single mom my, my dad was, was black my mother was white And my mother was an orphan. She grew up in a 1950s institutional orphanage where the kids were abused, uh, neglected, uh, beat. And when she turned 17 years old, they gave her a small suitcase, $20. And they said, good luck to you. There's the world. Make it happen. And unfortunately for her, one of the the first people she met was my well-dressed, quite a bit older, fast-talking father. And so to this day... I don't know where my last name comes from. And that's because my mother received the last name McCormick uh, in the orphanage, but she doesn't know where or why she got that last name. And when she went into labor with me, uh, my dad was nowhere to be found. So my mother had to walk herself to the hospital. And when I was born, she decided she was going to give me her, her last name. So 
that is what I came into the world to. My my mother and I, we grew up uh, in extreme U.S. poverty. I, I call it American poverty because if you want to see real poverty, go to other countries. Mm-hmm. This is this is kind of our, our poverty here is a, a little bit cute compared to some of these other countries. Yeah. But for the U for America here, yeah, I grew up very poor. And my mother and I would joke that we 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 were so poor we couldn't afford the O and the R. We were just po. And, and so, but, you know, through all of that, man, I, I went through some things. I was in juvenile three different times as a kid. One of my dad's prostitutes uh, sexually molested me from the ages of six, seven, eight years old. Uh, when I reunited with my mother at the age of 15, mm-hmm. she took me to have me tested uh, academically. And I was only testing on the fifth and sixth grade level to, to this day. I still don't hold a pen or pencil the the quote unquote right way, whatever that is. The right way mm-hmm. to me is do you get the job done? So that's the right that's way. Right. Uh, but all that said, man, I, I never graduated high school. I had to get my GED uh, and and I call it a good enough diploma. And but I never never went never went to college. And so those were the those were the early years, man. So I got a GED, no college degree, but here I am. Man, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff we can dissect here and talk about. And I, I, you know, <laughs> first, I want to start off as at, at what age did you find out kind of what your dad was doing? Were you when were you oh, consciously aware of what was going on? Early, my I I knew what my dad did at a very early age because on those rare occasions he would come pick me up for the weekend soon after he would pick me up, we'd probably go collect money from prostitutes. So I, I, yeah, he took you with him. Oh yeah. Yeah. This was, this was, it was the family business. Like I knew Mm -hmm. what my dad did early on. I was eight years old when my dad's house was raided, uh, by the law, by law enforcement. And you know, it's, it's not this cute stuff you see on TV, man. They kick the doors in, they break the windows, they kick the dog, they, Mm -hmm. they tear the house apart. Uh, and I remember that at eight years old and watching my dad leave in, in handcuffs and, you know, just wondering, yeah, wow, what's going to happen to my dad. But yeah, I knew what my dad did. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a story in my book. I, I talk about again, on one of those occasions I was with my dad on the weekend. I remember playing with one of my hot wheel cars, my little cars. I was playing in it in a, uh, stack of his cocaine. And I, the, the, the cocaine was basically the snow for my cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was funny is my dad, he comes out and he sees me playing in it. it there's a party going on, by the way. And he sees me playing in it and he runs up. And, and, and to this day, he wasn't pissed or worried about me as a child playing in cocaine. He was pissed because mm-hmm. I was messing up the product. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I, I knew what my dad did. I understood it. And, and. You know, many people may find this part uh, disgusting, and and that's okay. But this is the 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 environment I, I grew up in. I learned a lot watching my dad. I, I remember collecting from prostitutes, and I remember as a kid saying to myself, "Man, my dad takes all their money." And as a kid, I I, I clearly remember sitting in that front seat with him, saying to myself, "I wonder if I." let the prostitutes keep 40% of the money and I kept 60%, would I have more prostitutes because they saw that Mm. I treated them better? And that was really my 
first open door to entrepreneurship and thinking of business and how do you, yeah, but that's, that's where it came from. I, I remember just sitting there thinking, well, if I was a little nicer and I let the prostitutes keep some of the money, would I have more prostitutes? Thus I make more money. And, but yeah, that's, that's what I grew up in, man. So from a mental health perspective, was that kind of just your normal at that age? You know, were you able to just process things and it just come off as a way that, hey, this is just everyday life, especially when those things were happening with law enforcement or whatever it may have been that you got involved in? Or was there more of a, you know, when you're off on your own and you're sitting back thinking about these things, what what was your mind like? Was there anxiety? Was there depression? Like, how did that feel um, at the time? You know, there wasn't depression, you know, you, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. So that was the environment I grew up in. You know, I, I knew we were poor because there were times we, you know, when I was with my mom, uh, you know, I, I received free lunch at school. So there were times, man, where, where I would pull food from the trash can at school and, and eat people's lunch. When I knew they went outside for recess, I'd stay back, pull whatever leftover food out of the trash can, because I knew when I got home, there was nothing to eat. And I remember so many times eating lunch on a Friday afternoon, and that was my last meal until Monday afternoon uh, until I got free lunch again. So, Mm. you know, that was my normal. Yes, I knew I was poor. Yes, I knew we struggled. But uh, from a mental health perspective as a kid, I don't know that you're really in in touch with that. At least I wasn't. And so, but I, I wasn't depressed. I... I took it in. What what it did for me was my head was always on a swivel, man. Just be observant because you're you're in survival mode. You never know what's going to happen next. You're you're trying to make sure you uh, keep your eyes open. You don't want to receive the next beating. You don't want to get molested. You don't want to uh, you know see a stray bullet come your way. So I, mm-hmm. I I did my best to just always pay attention to my surroundings. Well, how did that tie into as well? Like what, when that happened with the molesting, you know, what was that to you? Was that again, did that just kind of come off as, Hey, this is my life. This is normal for me. Is that how no, it man, was in the moment? I'll, I'll full transparency on that one. That one sucked, man, because I was six, seven, eight years old. And, and, and I don't know how graphic I can be here. So if you want to beep any of this hey, man, out, who's behind the mask. It's, all right. Perfect. Perfect. It, yeah. So my dad's prostitute, she used to force me to uh, perform oral sex on her. And I was six years old, man. And and I remember her slapping me in the face and punching me in the head, telling me to do it right. And and man, I'm I'm six. What the hell does do it right mean? I had no clue what do it right meant. And I, I tell you where anxiety did come about is when I was with my dad. If he said, hey, I got to go make a run or, hey, I'll be right back. I I then got very anxious when I knew I was going to be left alone with that prostitute because I knew what was getting ready to go down. And and it wasn't until I was older that I realized part of what was happening for the prostitute as well. And and what I mean by that is my dad was controlling Mm -hmm. her and and, and I got to imagine in some effed up way her forcing me, forcing my dad's son to perform oral sex on her was kind of a control get back at my dad type thing. And, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, I, I always say to people, man, I look for a positive in every 
negative situation. And people say, well, what positive did you find there? At eight years old, I remember lady punched me really hard. She slapped me and, and I was just fed up, you know, three years of this. And I remember saying to myself, okay, at eight years old, man, Lee, I remember this. I said to myself, I will never, ever be in a position where I don't know what to do. And what that created was a sense of perfectionism for me. And, and we all know there's no such thing as perfect. That's right. And, and I spent years of people telling me, well, there's no such thing as perfect. And, and I always had a smart ass remark. I would say, look, if I can never touch perfection, damn it, I'm going to get close enough to smell it. And mm -hmm. so my whole, uh, I, I'd say up till I was about 35, uh, was just everything perfect, perfect, perfect. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what it, what it did lead to. Um, I, I don't know if this is a mental health piece or not, but man, I could not hold a relationship in my adult years. I was a monster. I sucked. I didn't know how to treat women. I just, man, I, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, if any at all, but I am remorseful for how I was in a lot of my relationships, man. And I just didn't know how to conduct myself. I didn't know how to quote unquote, be a man, be a partner, be a friend. And yeah. so I, I was just that, that would be the negative outcome that came from the environment. You know, I never saw mm -hmm. anyone uh, treat and respect my mom, at least from a male perspective with, with respect and kindness and, and things of that nature. I never saw my dad, give respect and kindness to two women. So for me, man, I didn't, there, there wasn't a whole lot of respect and kindness that I had for women. Here I am, I'll be 49 in September, man. I've been married uh, almost 10 years. Took me 40 years to get it right, man. And so I've mm -hmm. been, this is the longest relationship I ever, I've ever had with my wife right now. And it's a great relationship, but my God, I had to learn some lessons as through my adulthood. Yeah, man, we, you know, we talk about undoing a lot in the world, right? Like we always say that, especially with mental health or things that we're programmed to be or do that, you know, when we're adults, we're, we're trying to undo so much of the things that we shouldn't have been taught or, or shouldn't have been exposed to. So, you know, I can only imagine, man, like going through that, especially at such a young age and you're just, you know, they say that like from like zero to seven, you know, it's such a, uh, an important time because your brain's in like this, like theta state. And it's almost like you're, you know, you're collecting everything, learning how to be in society, learning how to like act, learning who you are. Um, and so you're just at the cusp of that right in there before. And, you know, you're getting sent all this information, man, of, of what life looks like through your lens. So I can only imagine like, I mean, and that's why I'm a big advocate for there is no time. There's no race of, of healing or undoing or or becoming who we're destined to be, man, because I mean, that's a, that's a lot, you know, and whether it was 20, 30, 40 years, however long it took you, you, you got to a point now where you're able to, to, to accept that love and get to a point where you're able to realize what you went through wasn't, <laughs> wasn't normal in the sense of everyday life or just from your, from your perspective, subjectively, even, you know, I can't imagine, you know, going through those moments and then, Hell, not even knowing, you know, what sex and stuff was at that age and let alone being forced to, to go through something like that. Yeah. It, you know, Lee, I'll, I'll say this, man. It's I've been asked this question many times. 
you know, if I could go back, would I do something different? And, and I tell people I wouldn't change a thing uh, mm-hmm. of my my childhood. Matter matter of fact, the only things that I would change is my mother wouldn't have had to have struggled so much. You know, it was it was it was hard to see my mom cry sometimes because she didn't have enough money or or you know things were were tight, electricity was cut off, or you know th- those things were were tough to see as a kid. And I would have changed that my mother didn't have to struggle so much. And I would have changed that three of my half brothers and sisters didn't go through the absolute hell that they went through. Uh, other than that, I wouldn't change a thing for me. So so much of my childhood, especially specifically about five years of it, were just mass chaos. Just you never knew what was going to happen from hour to hour. But my God, they have, have really helped me. In, in my career, it, 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 it's so interestingly, I'll put it this way. Because I grew up in such chaos, I find business to be very therapeutic and calming. And the reason mm-hmm. being is m- most people see business as it's stressful, it it's, uh, takes a toll on you. Well, if you look at business holistically, it's set up in a way of consistency, structure, levers, KPIs, and so it's it's measured and measured the right way and built the right way. You can actually have a bit of control because you never have full control, but you can have a bit of control <laughs> on business. As a kid growing up in chaos, I had no control over anything. Mm-hmm. So business has become very therapeutic for me. You know, the the numbers on the income statement are the numbers on the income statement. There, there's no uh, wondering. Oh my God, are, are they going to show up and arrest my dad? Are, you know, are we going to eat tomorrow? Are they going to cut off the electricity? Mm-hmm. Is, a lot is of some, uncertainty. Right. Is someone going to spit in my mother's face and call her a nigger lover? You know, I, I, that's, I constantly lived in that, that chaotic world of wonder. And it's funny you mentioned those things too, man, because my, <clears throat> my podcast, my last podcast before this, actually, our biggest topics were one, free will and like control and two perspective. And you just brought both of those things up. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm a big believer, man. And God, the universe, how, you know, whatever perspective you look at it through a higher power a force, you know, we, we get sent things subjectively through our own lens to, to, to form and craft our own souls uniquely. And so it's interesting, you know, and we get these signs and symbols and how kind of everything's intertwined. Right. So it's, it's funny you bring up those two points, man, because it keeps getting shown in my life. And I think it's a message that's important for people to hear because as a society, we're so fixated on control. Right. And yep. and, it, and it interests me hearing your perspective on that because you came from being controlled almost, you know, as a, as, as a kid and, and so much uncertainty to having that shift in perspective and finding that that safe place in business. But to the point where it's not even about control either. You didn't let your past, you know, control quote no. unquote, your your present to the point, you know, because I've seen where you're we all's organization, the culture is, you know, really renowned and people seem to really enjoy working there. So it's it's one of those things, man, that that control in our in our world is a is a topic that gets brought up quite a bit. And it's something I think too many people uh, try to hold on to it. And I've learned that firsthand, man, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive at four years old, um, and was licking carpet floors, holding knives up to my chest, doing crazy things. Um, and, but a lot of my obsession and compulsions were based around control, 
you know, controlling what was said, controlling what was going on, controlling the reaction, controlling the conversation, control, you know, trying to even control my own thoughts sometimes. But it's amazing, you know, what can happen when we just simply let go yep. of that idea altogether. Now, you, you, you know that uh, perspective for me is everything. If you even think back for a second early in the conversation, I said that I was American poor. The, the perspective there is I realize mm-hmm. there's somebody mm-hmm. way worse off in a, you know, r- right now, here's where I keep things in perspective. And, th- and this is where I feel like our society and people can be mad at me if they want. I don't care. Uh, our, our society is so self-absorbed and so soft, you I know, agree. we're, we're in, 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 because I, I look at it this way right now. I don't care what side of the political fence you fall on, left, right, independent, it doesn't bother me. I I could care less. But here's the fact. There's a single mom walking up from Honduras 1,100 miles with her two kids to try to get into this country and create an opportunity for herself. Man, on my worst day of being sexually abused, I never had to face anything like that. I was Mm. born here. So for me, I keep it in perspective and say to myself, hey, I was born in the United States. So regardless of what happens, I already have a leg up on the situation. I was born here. So I I never lose perspective. And and even right now with the the big virus thing that's going on, I have the incredible uh, pleasure to be able to speak with you know, CEOs, co-founders, uh, business consultants to to do their books. And a lot of these individuals I'll speak with during the, the shelter in place are like, oh, I'm stuck at home. And I'd say, wait a minute, I know you. You're worth millions of dollars. You live in a gated community. You're not stuck. Mm-hmm. I go, stuck is the kid who six hours of the day when he went to school that was his reprieve. That was his break from that abusive relationship. That kid is stuck. I go, mm-hmm. you have whole foods delivered to your house. You're not stuck. And mm-hmm. so it, it really does come down to perspective. It comes down to the words we use. Uh, you know, three words that I eliminated from my vocabulary as a kid. And I'll dive into them if you want. But there were three words that I eliminated. Yeah. yeah okay. I'll give them to you. Three words I eliminated. Hope, wish, and luck. And the reason being is when I was a kid and I would hope my dad would come pick me up, he never showed up. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, it didn't produce any food in the refrigerator. So I stopped hoping. And, and matter of fact, I got a friend of mine, he's a, he's a pastor, and he tells me, he goes, JT, I use the word hope in my sermon every Sunday. He goes, oh, last Sunday, I used it 16 times. And I said, okay, watch this. I go, do you want me to hope? there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? Mm-hmm. And, and re- remember, he's a pastor. He looks at me and he goes, damn. <laughs> he said, I've, I've never looked at it from that perspective. And I said, look, if you just hope there's a God, you don't technically have to commit. You can kind of, you can kind of half-ass that one. You, I, well, you know, I hope this God thing works out and you know, maybe if he is real, okay. But if you truly believe there's a God, then you have to do your best and commit to living a godly life. And Mm -hmm. so I don't hope and then wish, oh my God, that's, that's worse than hope. You know, people who will drive through a neighborhood, oh, I wish I had a house like this. Oh, I wish I got a promotion. I, I wish, wish, wish. Wishing does not produce anything. 
And so I, I threw wish out of the door long time ago. And, and I'm so passionate about the word wish and eliminating it from, from the human language. Uh, when my kids, I've got four children, uh, six, five, three, and one. So we have a lot of birthdays at our house. And Not quite good. What? 20 some yet though, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have a lot of birthdays, man. But when we put that cake on the table and we get ready to sing happy birthday and they blow out those candles, we don't say make a wish. We say make mm-hmm. a goal. You you make a goal. You don't make a wish. There's no wishing in, in the McCormick house. And then the last word, luck, I just, that's a disgusting word. There's no such thing as luck. You know, mm-hmm. people say the $100 million Powerball winner, oh, she was lucky. No, she bought a ticket. She wasn't lucky. And, and so for me, I look for words of execution. If I believe something that means I have to execute. If I mm-hmm. believe I can grow that business, I have to execute on growing that business. If I believe I can have the big house, I have to do what I need to do to get the big house. I so I, that, be- I believe, I don't hope, I don't wish, and there is no luck. Well, words have power too. That's yes. why I'm, I'm going to go out there a little bit on you, but you know, spelling, it's called spelling for a reason. You know, you're basically casting spells um, verbally, oh, wow. right? You're manifesting things in a way through power. And that's why I, I love and hate words all at the same time. Um, because they can be great, but they also can cause more issues and more problems. And, you know, we consciously are aware of sometimes. So, yes. uh, and you brought up belief too, and there's a lot of power in belief, like, like love and fear, right? There's, they're very strong forces that we can't always see. Right. Um, but the power behind those forces, belief alone, when you believe something and put that energy and that attention and focus, um, I mean, it, it moves mountains, man. It, it, it can change realities for sure. So I really, I really like how you put that, especially like in the term of like just drawing the line saying, Hey, these aren't even words we even no. choose consciously choose to use, you know, cause we, we go throughout our day, you know, saying things and doing things that, you know, if we actually look back and like, man, did I really just say that? Or I really just do that? You know, it, it's, re- it can be really shocking to take that slight moment and to realize what you're actually doing unconsciously throughout yes. the day. Um, and it's something that I, you know, it, and this is another kind of out there point, but a lot of what you're talking about ties into the seven hermetic principles. I don't know if you've ever looked into that, but I think you would actually really enjoy it if you haven't. Um, it's just seven laws that are based off of, it's not any religion or anything associated with it. It's just philosophers over time and uh, hermetic, hermetic principles um, that were formed through uh, basically like this uh, ph- philosopher, like this idolized philosopher, Hermetides, and they said that one of the the one of the laws that you mentioned, um, one is cause and effect. So, like you said with the lottery ticket, um, there is no luck, there is no chance. There always is an effect, and there always is a cause. However, which way you look at it, um, and so that's what's interesting too, because people leave so many things to chance. But I mean, there's always whether it's divine intervention, whether it's something we did consciously or subconsciously, it's something that did not just arise out of thin air. And that's what's also what, you know, science is trying to show people now, especially with quantum physics and things like that, that there is no just poof, you know, it's it's something driving that force. So I really like that, man, on on a a multitude of levels. Um, So definitely check that out. I think you'd really enjoy just the the thoughts around some of the, some of that stuff. Excellent. Excellent. Will do. So 
so you got you got through those times, man, and you know, with with a lot of strength, for lack of a better term, like you know, you got to where you got through. But you also mentioned that you had gotten into some trouble as well. I think you you know you said you went to juvie a few times. Yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit because right everybody kind of kind of sees right where you're at now, and then they got a taste of what you went through. But there's also that middle part, right? There's that transition phase. So. How did that go and kind of guide me through that a little bit when you started getting into trouble and then take me to that kind of like aha moment or those moments where it led to like, okay, this, this can't be my reality any longer. Oh, wow. Can't be my reality any longer. So, so I was in juvenile three different times and the, the, the time that was the worst for me was my mother was in Texas and my father was in England and he had left me with one of his prostitutes and her three children, my, my half brothers and sisters. And I ended up going into juvenile and why it was so stressful and so hard is no one knew I was there. My mother was in Texas. She didn't know where mm. I was. I was back in Ohio, but she had no clue if I was in Ohio, Florida, or, or California. And then my dad was in uh, England, and literally only God knew where he was. And so, but no one knew where I was, where I was, and and I was in in juvenile. And fortunately, well, you don't mind me asking. Oh man, I, I went to juvenile twice for fighting, once for stealing. And that those were just uh, one, one time I, I was homeless at one point and I was sleeping on a bus stop and I had a little suitcase with me. And every day I would go to school with my little suitcase and a little boy teased me. You know, it was middle school. I, I was in eighth grade. I think I was like 12, 13 years old. And this kid would tease me every day for showing up with the suitcase. And I was always wearing the same clothes. And one day I snapped. And I, mm -hmm. I beat the little boy up and he went into the hospital. Kid went into a coma for a bit. And I went to juvenile. And I was there for, for almost three months until my, my Aunt Jean came in and got me. And so, yeah, I was in and out of uh, the, wow. the uh, juvenile three times on, the, on another occasion. I say it was for fighting, but I don't know if this is necessarily fighting. Uh, another one of my dad's prostitutes. Uh, was beating me and I just got tired of being beat. So I fought back. And when I fought back, she called the police. And when she oh, called the wow. police, they, they took me away <laughs> oh, <laughs> put, and God. put me in juvenile. Um, yeah. And I'm like, wait, this some shit. <laughs> the, the system, man. That's a whole yes. rabbit hole. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I it, it's funny too. I, I, I'm not a big play the race card guy because I always tell people, man, you want to talk racism? Let me tell you what it's like when black people don't like you because you're half white and white mm -hmm. people don't like you because you're half black. I go, now we can really have a race conversation. Yeah, I had a buddy that says the same thing, man. Yes. He, he swears up and down for that. You know? Yeah. And so, uh, but race did come into this because when she called the police and they got there, she was a white lady mm -hmm. and she was blonde. And so I, I'm, I'm brown, black hair. And she goes, yeah, this is, this is my boyfriend's son. He was uh, beating on me. So no questions asked. Guess who's leaving? And so, yeah, they handcuffed me and I, I went to, to juvenile. But uh, the big part of juvenile, and I'm so thankful for this to this day, uh, my last time in juvenile, I'm getting ready to leave. 
And one of the corrections officers comes up to me and, oh, I would like to know this gentleman's name to this day. He comes up to me, he gets on one knee and he gets right in my face and he goes, if you ever come back here again, you're going to man prison. Lee, I don't know what it was. Even to this day, man, I'm going to be 49. I do not want to go to man mm. prison. The, just the term doesn't sound nice. No, not at <laughs> I don't all. know what goes on in man prison, and I do not want to know what goes on in man prison. So uh, needless to say, I never went to man prison. And so I figured out, okay, I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I can make sure I never go to man prison. And, and that was, I was always grateful for that. So I, I look back in my life again, find the, the, the positives and negative situations. Yeah. Juveniles sucked. It was, it was completely negative, but that was an incredibly positive moment for me. Did you realize that then? How positive oh, yeah. that was? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. To- totally. Because he said man prison and it snapped. It was instant. I, I was like, man prison. What, what is you know, oh, so there's something else other than this. Like, I I knew jail, and you you hear jail, but I ex- had experienced juvenile, and juvenile's not a nice place. You know, yeah. just because you hear uh, the juvenile detention center, juvenile is just prison for kids. The right. same stuff that goes on in prison goes on in the juvenile facilities, mm-hmm. and I'm talking all the same stuff. Same souls, just at yes. a different age. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so when he said man prison, I was like, wait a minute, there's levels to this. And yeah, I'm, I'm like, I, I'm good. I tapped out. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Control, all delete. I'm canceling yes. this. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So you go through all that. Then, then what? So, I mean, how did, how did you transition? How did you get the experience that you did? What, what were some steps that you saw? Like, okay, like not going to man prison, not for me what was next? Like it, you know, cause a lot of people, like you said, they always have a reason or excuse. Like I can't get out of the situation, yeah. man. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. I, I think people would, would value greatly from hearing that. So, so I've got a couple of things. I, I've got to give a lot of love to my uncle Bobby when I was bouncing around from relative to relative and, and in and out of juvenile, Finally, my uncle Bobby allowed me to to live with him, and he was married and had four kids of his own. So here he was taking on his brother's child, another mouth to feed, and mm-hmm. and I was with my uncle Bobby for eighteen months, and I can say to this day, probably the most influential eighteen months I, I've ever had in in my my whole life, and every especially every little boy. Every little boy should get 18 months with with Uncle Bobby. And Mm -hmm. Uncle Bobby taught me manners. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. May I please? He taught me organization, attention to detail. He taught me respect. He taught me to follow through on your word, be on time. And these were all lessons that I learned over that that 18-month time period. And he wasn't the most loving of people. But damn, he taught me just invaluable lessons, especially for a a 14, 15 year old kid. Mm -hmm. He caught me at a great time and and he didn't miss around. He he followed. He he kept his word. If he said it, he was going to do it. And and I'll give you a story of how impactful Uncle Bobby was to me. So Uncle Bobby um, was was, uh, a man of faith. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we had to go to Bible study and you had to contribute. Like you didn't just get to go sit. You had to contribute to the Bible study. And then on Sundays, we went to church. But 
One, the, the summer I was with my Uncle Bobby, it's Friday. We're going on church vacation. We're leaving on Saturday. Church vacation, okay? So th- for the Lord, we're going on vacation. And and my Uncle Bobby on Friday night, he says, okay, we're leaving tomorrow, 10 a.m. sharp. And, and if my Uncle Bobby said it, he meant it. So the next day rolls around, Saturday morning, my aunt, she tells my Uncle Bobby, she goes, hey, I'm going to run up to the store and get those cashews you like. And he said, no, you forgot something. And you're trying to blame it on me. He goes, I'm leaving here at 10 a.m. So my cousins were partial to my aunt because she was really nice. She was really sweet. She always would get them everything. But I had learned Uncle Bobby controls the money in the house. I'm staying with him. And so uh, it's about 10 till 10. We're packing up the van. And I run to the end of the driveway. I'm like, man, where's my aunt? Come on. And this is early 80s. And so I run back up to the van. I go, hey, Uncle Bobby, I'm going to go upstairs, get my football. He says, son, I know what you're doing. I'm leaving here at 10 a.m. I go upstairs. I get my football. I come down. He said, okay. Shuts the doors. He says, get in. Man, I got in and we drove off. We left my aunt and my cousins on church vacation at 10 a.m. So we drive. We get there. My Uncle Bobby and I are hanging out. And, you know, this is the first time. I didn't even know what vacation meant before this moment. And so we, we, you know, I'm enjoying it. We're stopping at, you know, rest stops and, and gas stations. I'm getting snacks. I'm like, man, this is vacation. This vacation thing is great. And so we get there four or five la- hours later. Guess who shows up? My aunt with my cousins. And we're in the hotel room. And Lee, she goes at it on my uncle. Bobby, I can't believe you left us. And and she goes on like five minutes straight, no breath. And then she stops and he looks at her calmly. My uncle Bobby never yelled, calmly looks at her and he says, are you done? And she said, yes. He goes, and he said, just calmly, he goes, I said 10 o'clock. And I looked at that moment. I was like, Oh man, Uncle Bobby is the real deal. And she lit back into him. She stopped again. And and without he didn't miss a step. He goes, I said 10 o'clock. And I was like, wow. And from that moment on, everything for me be on time. Mm. And that was a hell of a lesson. And, and here I took it a step further. No one has ever missed an opportunity or been fired for being early. No one. Mm -hmm. I know a ton of people who have missed opportunity and who have been fired for being late. I don't know one person who has ever missed an opportunity or been fired for being early. It's one of the easiest things to do, man. And I think it just comes down to simple respect as well. You know, I think it, because it's funny that story, because I had a similar one where I had a relative come into my life and, um, he too was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive and did really well off. Was, had his uh, executive headhunting company and all this back in the days. And he was in the sixties. And I had never. I grew up in a two stop like town. I'd never like been on a plane and just going through some things, right? And so he calls me up one day and says, "Hey, you know, this is your cousin Dan." Da 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 da. And I had never talked to this guy. I only like got a set of golf clubs from him when I was like ten, and I had never played golf. I played baseball. I sucked at golf. So I was like, Hey, how's it going? He introduced himself and he was like, you know, I heard your dad told me you were going through some things. I just wanted to call and get to know you. He's like, tell you what, when, when you got some free time coming up and I, I was like, well, spring break's coming up. I was in college at the time and, and 
he said, uh, you know, we'll be in my house at this day and this time. And we're going to Vegas. I was like, what? I was like, never been on a plane, let alone been to Vegas. I was like, what the hell is going on? I was like, okay. So I show up to his house that, that day and not at that time, the man sitting in the back of the room, like the, uh, you know, just gray peppered hair, goatee with his legs crossed, rocking in his recliner and just looks up at me and says, where you been? I was like, what do you mean? He said, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something right now. My time is very valuable. He said, I didn't put this trip together for shits and giggles. He said, I want to get to know you and I see a lot of potential in you. And it's now 830 and I've asked you to be here at eight o'clock. And he just goes on and on and like telling me like how I should have been on time. And I'm just thinking at the moment, I'm like, man, like this guy's crazy. You know, why, why is he quote unquote tripping about, you know, me being late and that, and like you said, man, that was one of the biggest lessons that has ever, because he taught me about, you know, business and how to articulate myself. And because my accent was a lot worse than what you hear now. So it it took a while to get rid of the, the country twang. Um, so, I mean, he just, he showed me things, man, that, you know, unfortunately my parents weren't able to do, but they, he just taught me things that, and showed me a different world. And that one lesson, man, is a, is a story and something that always sticks with me. So it's, it's cool that you shared that because it's something so simple. It is. But yet it, 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 it means so much more. And people will make so many excuses at, mm. you know, the, the traffic, the weather. What, what, okay, then, you know, w- watch the weather the night before. Leave the house 20 minutes earlier. If you know traffic is bad, leave 20 mm. minutes earlier. Especially so, now. Our phones I, live in our hand. Man, I'm telling you. Maps, you see the estimated ETA, whatever. Yes. I mean, there's no, I mean, the excuses now are like back then, maybe you could have thrown something out there. Now with yeah. technology, I mean, you know, come on. I catch heat from people with this one. I, I, I tell people I don't do excuses and reasons are just is a cute word for excuses. Mm. <laughs> and some people go, no, there's actual reasons why. Things the explanations and, go, okay. and excuses are the same almost. I mean, I, I, that's just how, how I operate. So, but man, to, to, to answer your question, you know, after I finally got my, my GED, I came home. I wanted to celebrate with my mom. I was like, hey, I got my high school. I called it a high school diploma. So y'all were close. It, and it sounds like you and your mom were pretty close. Once we reunited. Yeah. You know, my, my mom was the, the the best part of a foundation that that I ever had. And, mm-hmm. you know, even that was was strained and struggled at times and when we were separated. And so, you know, but but if I had to say that the biggest foundation I ever had, it was it was my mom. And when I came home. I say, hey, I got my diploma, you know, my GED, whatever. And she said, good, you got two weeks to get a job or get out. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's that's how it's going down, huh? And so I got my first job cleaning toilets at a restaurant. I had to come in the night, the, the morning a- after, uh, the first thing in the morning. So I had to clean the toilets from the night before. And I remember standing there in front of these toilets. They were filthy. And I remember saying maybe a month into my job, I said, okay, if this is my job, I'm going to have the cleanest toilets in the state of Texas. Mm. If this is what I'm going to do, I am going to be the very best at it. And in that moment, I channeled something that my dad had said when I was a kid. He goes, whatever you do in life, be the best at it. If you were going to sweep streets, be the best street sweeper. Now, he could have given me a little more to aspire to, but that was the the example he gave. And, And it stuck with me. And so in that moment, I said, okay, these toilets are going to be sparkling. And I made sure from that point on, everything I've ever done 
I, I've tried to be the absolute best at it. I've I'm the best at uh, work ethic. You know, my my wife and I literally were just talking about this. I don't know a month ago, and I told her I said, you know, I've never missed a day of work. I said I'm not talking vacation days. I'm not talking you know time off. I said I've never called into work. I've never missed a day. She goes, you gotta be kidding me. I go, nope. I said mm-hmm. somebody's paying you to do a job. Do the job. And and so. I, I pride myself on that. You know, I know I'm not academically gifted by no means, but I knew I could control my work ethic. And so for that, that is where I put all my my value in myself was my work ethic was, okay, ask questions, work hard, always, you know, because asking questions for me, Lee, is, is everything. Because the worst sure. you can tell me is no. If I ask you right now for a million dollars, and you said, no, okay, I still don't have a million dollars. And so, but what if you said, okay, what do you need it for? Oh, you know, didn't expect that. So I, I just believe in ask for everything. You can ask questions. Uh, give love to my my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dedeck. She said, there are no stupid or dumb questions. And man, I've been asking questions ever since. Questions are everything, man. My, yes. my nickname in school was actually question mark. And that's something that like, I hate it, man. It made, it made me so sad at the time because, you know, I, cause I did well, but it, I always asked so many questions and now here I am, you know, <laughs> on a podcast and that's what I do is just ask questions. <laughs> so it, it always works out right. <laughs> yeah. So man, I, I went from cleaning toilets. Then I, I had a, uh, I got a job at nationwide insurance and I was the mailboy. I pushed a cart and I was a filer wow. and I remember pushing the cart one day and I'm walking past this conference room and on the sign, it said uh, free lunch and learn 401k. Now, all I saw was free lunch. I'm like, I'll go to that. I I had no clue what 401k was. In fact, I thought 401k was the conference room number. And so... And so, so I was like, well, free lunch. And man, I went in there and I sat for that free lunch and learn. And I heard two of the greatest words in the history of mankind, which were compound interest. And from that day forward, I became consumed with investments, taught myself how to invest in stocks, how to invest in the market, how to read a balance sheet, how to understand quarterly reports, annual reports. And what's crazy is all of this stuff is when you're a publicly traded company, it's all accessible. It's free. You can go, I can go look at the quarterly earnings for Johnson and Johnson, 3M, uh, Chase mm-hmm. Bank. I can go pull it up right now. And so I just became consumed and, and tried to put every dollar I had into uh, investments. And so I'll, I'll fast forward a bit, man. I went from the insurance company, started working for a payday loan company at 23. Great opportunity. A, a, I had worked myself into with a gentleman. Uh, and then after payday loans, I got into mortgages and uh, somewhere 2007, lost all my money. I had managed to to uh, make a little over a million dollars, lost it all and and was broke. I tell people I was negative broke. I had to borrow money from my best friend and stepdad to to pay oh, wow. my rent. And so it lost it all, had to start over and then started working at a software company. And I was the lowest paid person at the software company. I sat in a storage closet on a fold-out metal chair making sales calls. There were 13 of us. 
and I was the lowest paid person. I didn't even know how to sell software. And within two and a half years, I became the president of the company Mm -hmm. And we scaled that company from that storage closet to offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and in Monterey, Mexico. And I stayed there five years. And then after that, here I am at, at Scribe. Wow. What do you think drove you the most, man? You know, because a lot of people, I think, you know, they always want to use the word. They always look for something almost outside of them sometimes, motivation or this or that. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think? Was it just knowing was it those lessons that you learned that you think that just stuck with you and just knowing where you came from and, and never wanted to go back there? Like, what was that fueling fire? You know, it's still in you. Lee, I've always been asked that question. I, I believe it's never one thing. You know, people are like, JT, yeah, what's one true. thing? It's never one thing. It's a combination of little things. You know, the, the lessons that I learned as a kid growing up in chaos, realizing that you can ask questions, ask for for everything. Belief in oneself. That that was a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look in the mirror and I, I would always say, okay, if no one in this world loves me, I got one person that does, myself. Love yourself first. Believe in yourself. Even if no one else does, then you know you have one person in this world that believes oh, in you and loves you, and, that, oh, and that's true. you. And and I take it a step further. How how dare you ever expect someone else to love you if you don't even love yourself? How do you how dare you expect someone to believe in you if you don't even believe in yourself? And yeah. so I, I just always believe I could do more. I could be more. Uh, regardless of you know. And now don't get me wrong. You know I, I love the name of your show, but behind the mask. You know, I didn't have a college degree, man. I was so intimidated by people who had degrees and and all that stuff. I I never uh, wanted people to know that I didn't have a degree. I only had a GED. I didn't want people to know my dad was a pimp with 23 kids. I didn't know where my last name comes from. So, you know, there was a big part of me that was always... Uh, embarrassed of of where I came from because I didn't have the academic pedigree and the two-parent home and parents that sent me to college. I had a whole different set of circumstances that I I was dealing with. But uh, to this day, again, I I can't say it enough. I wouldn't change a thing of where I came from. Yeah, I hear that a lot, man. And I even feel that myself because it's kind of like the whole butterfly effect, right? Like if you change one thing, then that changes everything. You know, that one scenario would have dominoed into everything else in your life and and nothing would ever be the same and you wouldn't be the man or woman that you are, you know, in this present moment. So I hear a lot of people say that and I'm a a firm believer in that myself. Yep. So, well, that's interesting, man. I I really appreciate you being, you know, open and authentic and sharing that because I know, especially like, you know, somebody that is you know, at a company or is in the known in the business world, right? Like people treat business almost like a, its own reality sometimes, you know, like a different reality. And there isn't a lot of authenticity or there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And there's a lot yeah. of people that just, you know, wear so many masks, man, it creates this cognitive dissonance that, you know, they're one person with their kids or one person with their spouse or one person with their employees and work. And so I think that's where we run into a lot of issues. And and like you said, man, you nailed it with self-love. I, I started loving myself for the first time uh, probably about two or three years ago. So it was one of those things where, you know, I, I'd look in the mirror my entire life and didn't love who I was, even though I knew I was a good person, knew I had potential, knew all these things. It's just, it's something that clicks inside of you, man, that just finally like 
like you said, if you can't love yourself, you can't go out and love anyone else or expect that love to be reciprocated back to you. So I, I think that was really well said, man. And, uh, I also saw too, that you were doing a lot, like what something mentioned with like conscious capitalism. Do you mind touching on that briefly and, and what that is? And, and I enjoy seeing the word conscious anywhere in business. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That actually is. So, so, so for me, I got involved with conscious capitalism because uh, of the, the communities that I come from, you know, they're, you don't know what you don't know. And, and, and I'll give you an example of this. I, I, I spoke, uh, I was the keynote speaker at a, at a group one time, a room full of about 300 CEOs, business owners, so on and so forth. And I said, okay, how many people in this room know how to perform brain surgery? Do we have any neurosurgeons? And of course, nobody was, so nobody raised their hand. I said, how many people can build and launch a rocket? Any aerospace engineers? Of course, there was none in the room. I said, see, we don't know what we don't know. Unfortunately, the communities that I come from, there's just a lot we don't know. And, and I went on to say, I go, how can I ever aspire to be what I don't know exist? Mm-hmm. How do how do I know that I can be a banker, a, a teller, a bank VP when there's not even a Chase Bank in my neighborhood, but there's a checks, cash, payday loan and pawn shop in here. Mm-hmm. And so how how can I, you know, the, the true story. You know, I did not know what a barista was until I was 34 years old. Oh, wow. I, there was no coffee shops where I grew up. So how, how do you know what a, a barista is? You know, how do I know I can become a certified financial planner if I've never seen one? So uh, conscious capitalism to me is I believe that we truly, if we went back to these communities who just don't know the power of capitalism, we could change 30, 35% of, of those communities. Of course, Everybody's not going to want to get on board. Of course, everybody's, you're going to have some people who have an excuse and a reason. And okay, I'm not talking to those people, but for the people who just want to know how the hell do I get out of this community? How do I achieve success? Given what I've accomplished in my life, I have a deep responsibility to give back to those communities and spread the word. You know, growing up, I, the only three options I knew that were available to me for escape was um, rapper, athlete, drug dealer. No one told me about entrepreneurship. No one told me about business, being an executive. No no one told me about being a pharmaceutical rep. And, and Lee, I got to share this, man. Boy, I pissed some people off with this one. So I, I love, love sharing this one. I, I tell people all the time, I said pharmaceutical reps are glorified, legalized drug dealers. And a lot of people are like, what? And I said, think about it. Every, every drug dealer knows the first rule. And the first rule is the first sample is free. What do pharmaceutical reps do for a living? They hand out samples. (laughs) And and so, so many people are just offended by that. I said, Hey, if we're going to be honest, Mm-hmm. The pharmaceutical rep in that whole chain is completely broken. If you go to drug dealers on the street, there's three layers. There's the cartel, there's the local kingpin, and then there, there's the street dealers. 
That's it. There's three levels. You go over to pharmaceutical reps. There's the rep who has an expense account, who has a company car and a cell phone. They got to go in, meet with the doctor, give out free samples. The doctor then gives the sample to the, the, the patient. The patient likes it. And the doctor says, oh, but wait, if you want me to write a prescription, you need to come back in so I can get a, a visit fee on that as well. So then the doctor takes five minutes to write you a prescription, sends it to Walgreens. Now Walgreens has to get their cut. Then your insurance pays for. So now United Healthcare has to get their cut. And before you know it, it all makes its way back up to Pfizer, who's the drug kingpin. No one likes that example, but damn it, that's how it works. It is. Yeah, I speak a lot on that with mental health because we're so quick to diagnose and prescribe, uh, especially young children. But yet when we talk about holistic medications and nature and plants and what have you, you know, people go up in arms, but yet they won't hesitate with giving their, you know, six-year-old some pill that they have no idea what's in it just to quote, you know, to, to, to heal that kid. Right. You know, because I went through all that I went through without any medication. So I'm a bit, you know, I kind of stick my my flag in the sand big time. And I think it has its place sometimes. Right. Like certain pharmaceuticals, of course, and modern medicine helps our world. But yeah, man, you you nailed it. And I'm a big advocate for that, especially in terms of mental health, because it's become so reliant. It's just it's, you know, the, it's these sugar pills that just become, you know, it's an illusion that it's actually helping you. And there's really no no help at all. There's no true healing. It's just a, a bandaid on the issue. So that's a, a big spot for me in my life and how I advocate for certain things. So I appreciate you sharing that. For sure. For sure. So like I said, man, I, my, my belief, one of my, my life goals is to give back to those communities. And that's where, you know, the, the whole group of conscious capitalism you know, how, how are these communities supposed to know what organic food is when there's no whole foods in the, in the hood? There's no right. whole foods in those communities that, that I come from. And, and I'm very passionate about this as well. When, when I say low economic communities, most people think black and brown communities. That's it's just a fact is what it is. I've asked so many people that question and some admit it. They'll, they'll say, yeah, that's the first thing I think of. But the fact of the matter is there's just as many poor white communities in this country as well. West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Mississippi, Alabama. There's a ton of poor white communities. And the mm-hmm. fact is we don't know what we don't know. And if we can just help one another, man, that's we're all on our journey. If we can just drop the judgment, drop the the hate, learn to love ourselves. And then like, like we've been talking about this entire time, we can change so many different things and it doesn't have to be for everyone. No impact. It's not like you have to go out and save millions. Each person that you touch that life, it goes out into and ripples effect. Just, I mean, just as your uncle Bobby, right? Like that one individual changed your life forever. Your mom, whoever crosses our path. It doesn't always have to, you know, impact millions like people want to think sometimes and have right. massive reach, man. It really just takes just impacting one person's life and that person will go out and, and do their thing. And it just, you know, compounds <laughs> from that. Speaking of compounding. Right. So it's it's something that builds on each other, man. It's it's We make life a lot more complicated. Than we what we do, is. man. I, mm-hmm. Lee, matter of fact, I, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I, I'll, I'll end it on, on this note right here. My fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Fletcher, black woman, fourth grade, every day after we said the Pledge of Allegiance, she made us recite the golden rule. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We live in a fractured society right now. I mean, it is damaged right now. And I believe that if we just started there, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that would bring great changes within our society. Does it fix everything? No, no, it doesn't. Now, no one thing will fix everything. But you know what, damn it, if we just started there, oh, it it fixes a huge percentage of our problems in this country. Well said, man. And what a way to wrap it up. For everybody listening, where can everybody uh, reach out to you, find you, learn more about Scribe? What's oh, the gosh. best way? Scribemedia.com is our company website. If you're looking for me personally, the only social media platform I'm on is, is LinkedIn. So uh, I go by Javon JT McCormick. And so you can find me on LinkedIn. I Usually every Tuesday, I'll post life mistakes that I've made, life lessons that that I've had over the 25 plus years of my career. I, I find it interesting that everyone, we say as a society, we learn the most from our mistakes, but no one posts their mistakes. I can yeah. find a, a million and one list on top five things Jeff Bezos does, top 10 things Steve Jobs did to be successful. I don't want their success list. Can someone provide me the top 10 mistake list of Jeff Bezos? I want that list. <laughs> yeah. So I I post my mistakes and and I tell people, this is what I did wrong. Just like on this call with you, man, I, I was horrible in relationships, blew all my money, went, went through it. I made a ton of mistakes. First time president of a software company, man, I made so many mistakes. But the, the fact of the, the matter is the goal is to learn, grow and not repeat your mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes, but learn, grow, and don't repeat those mistakes. Well said, man. Well said. Well, you all heard it here. This has been a great episode, and I appreciate everyone tuning in to another recording of Who's Behind the Mask. Mm -hmm.